What's good, everybody? I'm John Zastrzemski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore, and you are listening to Black on the Air. End of the year episode. I had a very cool conversation with Mariana Von Zeller, who is the host of Trafficked. It's uh, showing on the Nat Geo channel. It's really um, one of those rabbit hole type of shows, guys. You start watching this thing, you're like, damn. Uh, Such an interesting world, the world of uh, black markets and smuggling and all that kind of stuff. Um, I had a great conversation with her. I've been a fan of the show uh, since it came in a couple of years ago, and I think I think they just dropped their second season and they're shooting the third one. So um, stay tuned for that. Guys, it's the end of the year. COVID is raging again. 2021, I don't know which was worse. Twenty, Well, 2020 probably is worse because, um, you know, it was the first year of the pandemic. It's just so horrible. But 2021 was a motherfucker too. 2021 might have been worse. I mean, you had January 6th. You know, I had some personal stuff I've shared. You know, it was that was just a nasty year. And it ends with the pandemic back, you guys. Seriously, what the fuck? We've had enough of this. We've had enough. Oh, man. I know people are exhausted out there. But let me just let me just say this, especially for the holidays right now. Be safe out there, you guys. Please. I am imploring with you. Be as safe as you can. Please get the vaccine if you have not gotten it. Please get the booster if you need the booster. Stay as safe as possible. Encourage those family members and friends that haven't done it. Some people aren't going to do it, and there's nothing you can do about it probably. Um, But hopefully people can do the best they can so they don't die from this thing. You know, Now we got this Omicron uh, variant, which... um, seems to be spreading so fast. Um, But you know what? I think the thing with this one is, hopefully this is true. We don't know yet because it's still early. Hopefully this one is not as deadly as like Delta and the first wave. And maybe because when it uh, mutates, I'm saying this like I'm a scientist, like I really know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. I'm just making this up. But hopefully in its desire to, you know, be more virulent, maybe it's not as deadly. So who knows? Maybe it lost some of its mojo in trying to get to people. And think about this, you guys. You're really not a very good virus if you kill people really fast. You're not doing a good job, virus. Sorry. Because uh, people won't be able to spread it if they're dying all over the place. If you really want to be a good virus, I'm talking to you directly, COVID-19, Omicron, is stop killing people. Stop killing people. And, you know. Just give them a cough here and there. You will last forever, my friend. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. But, and not to make light of any of this, but, um, oh God, I'm just, guys, I am just dizzy from all of this stuff. I really am. So I'm hoping everybody has a safe and good holiday season, Christmas and everything else that you're celebrating. I wish that for everybody. That is my wish for this year. Um... Whew. And I don't have a lot to share with you, except for the fact that I'm looking forward to next year podcast-wise. I think I'm going to shake things up a little bit, try to do things, some things maybe a little different. You know, not not too differently, because I know people really enjoy what I'm doing here. Like, I want to use video a lot more. We've been doing some of that teasing, but um, who knows? Maybe there'll be a complete video um portion to this show where you can watch it as well as listen to it by the way we'll love your feedback if that's something that you'd like to see let me know um i'm exploring these types of options um the other thing is 
I'm exploring. Uh, I was going to share with you. I decided not to because I think I'll do it uh, in the new year. Uh, and I think COVID has fucked so many things up right now that I'm going to wait to share this. And what I'm talking about is, and I've mentioned it here before, the philosophy that I've come up with um, that I call creation that I've shared with a lot of my friends and family. came up with it about maybe 15 or so years ago. And it really, really has helped people a lot get clarity and that kind of stuff in their lives and just um, really been helped to people. But I think I want to figure out a good way to share that with you guys. And what I think I will do is I'll give you like a tease to it in one of my early podcasts, let's say in January, just to get the conversation started. Find out how many people are really interested in it. And I may do maybe a separate pod on it, possibly like a mini pod or... I might start doing some uh, actual workshops on it where if any of you are having some issues in your lives, I might start working with you uh, like in groups, like we'll do some, maybe some Zooms or something like that. Who knows? So I'm open up. I'm open to a lot of possibilities in this. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time, by the way. I had imagined doing it in person, but because of COVID, it's a little more difficult. But it might be a blessing in some ways, you know, where uh, you may be in different parts of the world and you know, just need a little help in your life or whatever. Um, and this would be the way to do it. So that's what I'm exploring for next year. Some exciting things. More part of what um, is an evolution in my life is the, um, this is work that I've wanted to do for a while, is working with people on an individual and group basis and just to help them uh, get a hold on on what's going on in their lives, you know, and their relationship to the world, let's say, and that type of thing, and a little clarity. And it's very exciting, and I think it's something that you guys are like. So I'm looking forward to that part of my life and working with you guys in that, or whoever else is out there, because I think we need it. I think the pandemic has just showed how fragile our relationships with the world can be, you know, how tenuous and all that stuff. Um, the threads that we built to get through certain aspects of our life, you know. Um, so that's what we have coming up, as well as uh, different types of topics. I'm going to be doing more uh, shows about um, some of the issues that are happening on the left right now and some of the conflicts between what I see is... Um, let's say, progressivism and centrism, for want of a better word. And there's a lot of ways to talk about this. And by the way, race is kind of in the middle of that in some ways, too. And I'll be talking about that issue. Just a little tease. Just a little tease. And it's more social I'm talking about than even political, um, which is, to me, more interesting. You know, um, once again, our relationships to certain things more so than real political ideology type stuff, which, you know, doesn't interest me as much. Um, so I thought maybe, um, you know, I asked for some questions and everything. Here's a question from someone, uh, someone called at gumbo pudding on Twitter. That's great. That's a great handle there. Let's see. Uh, and the question was very simple. They said, I have lost all faith in U.S. political system. The Dems are weak and Republicans have gone Trumpism. Do you have any faith in things will get, get better politically? Do I have any faith that things will get better politically? Thank you for your question, Gumbo Pudding. I don't know if I have faith that the current system will get better. It has proven so far that it is on a getting worse trajectory <laughs> and it has been on a getting worse trajectory for quite a while now. Um, my hope for the U S political system is that I'm hoping that we're at a breaking point where it's going to open up and we truly will get, um, a multi-party system. And I know we do have different parties now, but they really haven't mattered in national elections and in the kind of in the structure of how our national politics are done and that type of thing. And I'm hoping in the 21st century that that changes a bit because I think our conversations are too binary right now. Our political solutions are too binary. And I think they need to be opened up 
And I think we need legit um, players and factions out there that have a legit say in what goes on in this country. And I think there are at least three or four uh, categories that have a legit chance of doing it, you know. And, you know, that would be fantastic to me. That would give me hope. More so than the parties that are there now doing something different. Because I just see them getting more and more extreme and, and divisive and all that type of stuff. But you're right about the Republicans. I don't know what the fuck happened. Well, Trump happened. But it's they, do, they don't in any way resemble what Republicans have been um, in the past. You know, we're something you could give them the benefit of the doubt for some things. But these motherfuckers, these Trumpists, man, they completely have lost their minds. Look, Democrats, I, I will criticize a lot because I am a Democrat, you know, and I care a little bit more about what happens to the future of that and that type of thing in some ways, you know. And uh, so it's more scolding when I go after the Democrats. But Republicans, I don't know what to say. Those Trumpies, guys, I don't know what to say because these motherfuckers are just crazy. Uh, when you look at some of the uh, texts that have come out with Mark Meadows and some of these people that really have drank that Trump Kool-Aid and were trying to come up with ideas to uh, nullify the election and everything, guys, that what kind of fucking shit is that? That's not political ideology. You know, that's just... Um, I don't even know if there's a word for it. Like, we keep throwing the words like fascist and all that stuff, but it's worse than that. I don't know what it is. It's, you know what it is? It's cultish. It really is a cult. And the right has attacked the left for a long time about, um, the they called it um, the cult of secularism for a want of better word, you know. And whereas they were a religious cult. <laughs> so <laughs> pick your poison. But um, this cult of Trump is so bad and so nasty. And Tucker Carlson, by the way, is is a, a nasty appendage of that. Maybe not even appendage. He may be the beating heart of it at this point. Certainly not the brains of it. Um, I don't think I've seen anything like that. Um, there have always been like nastier parts of parties and stuff, the Dixiecrat part of the Democratic Party, the John Birch part of the Republican Party, all that kind of stuff, you know. But the Trumpy part of the Republican Party, I don't think there's a corollary right now. I don't think anything is like it um, in our political system. It's just not. And it needs to go. I don't know if it is, guys. I think it may be, there may be other people coming to take its place, you know, once they're done with Trump to represent that. Because something is also, it's not just a worship of Trump, right? There's something about these Trumpies that is motivating, you know, that is compelling them towards that orange light, right? It's not just something he's doing. It's something, it's a need that they have that he's um, providing that. So that's a little scary. It's kind of fucked up. So we'll see what happens. So that's kind of my answer, Gumbo Pudding. So I do not have faith that things will get better politically if it stays the way it is. I would have faith if our political system expands, breaks up a little bit, and we do something different by including more voices and not trying to change the voices that are there. I think that's the way to nullify these little factions, you know. Because um, some people have no place to go. They just don't. The parties are not representing how they would really like to be represented in government right now. It just, it's not there, you know. And I'm more and more falling into that category myself, you know. So we'll see. But I ain't never voting for nobody like Trump. I don't care how much, I don't care how much I get disillusioned by the Democrats. There is no way in hell I would ever vote for somebody like Trump. Trump or any of his minions. Not going to happen. So there you go. Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right, you guys. Um, so lots of exciting things happening in 2022. Please be safe, like I said, this holiday season. I really appreciate everybody reaching out this year. 
especially after my brother. I lost my brother and all that stuff. You guys have been awesome. I have the best fans. The people even that disagree with me, you guys who challenged me this year, I just want to thank you for that. I got in some spirited discussions with people and stuff like that. It was so much fun. And you guys are so smart, too. You know, and it always makes me think, too, when you throw shit at me. Larry, did you think about this? I'm like, motherfucker, stop. Oh, ooh, that is interesting. <laughs> you know, So always, always, this is a a challenge forum here. Don't be, you know, I welcome all challenges. I am not threatened by differences of opinion in this forum. Black on the air. And we will, um, like I said, next year, we're going to even strive more to give you more difference of opinion that is the difference coming from some quality thinking and not some bullshit. All right, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's all we got. Uh, enjoy this pod, and I'll speak to you in 2022. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. As I promised, a special guest today is a show that, man, when it came on, Nat Geo. I troll stations like Nat Geo, just so you know, just to see what the cool new thing is on. I love that. And I saw this thing called Traffic a couple of years ago. I'm like, Traffic? What is this? You know, and I was I was just wrapped by this. It was so interesting. You know, you just, once you watch it, you go down the rabbit hole. You can't come out of it. It's so interesting. And we have the host of Traffic here, Mariana Van Zeller, um, Black on the Air. Welcome to the show, Mariana. Oh, thank you, Larry. I'm such a fan. So happy to be here. Oh, Right back at you, man, it's like a high wire act when I'm watching your show. It's so interesting. You know, you just really immerse us into these worlds, this un the underbelly of, you know, these things that are going on. And, and as it's clearly shown in your show, like all around us, as we're, you know, <laughs> these things are happening right next door. And it's not just, you know, in the jungles of Mexico and that kind of stuff. It's really fascinating. Yeah, it really isn't. I think it's the biggest misconception about black markets. So the show's all about black markets, as you know. Yeah. And I think the biggest misconception is that they happen in very sort of deep and secretive corners in faraway places on earth. And it's just not the case. It often happens in plain sight. Yeah. And usually right around the corner from where you are. You know, we filmed some crazy things. It's a fascinating topic because black markets have been with us forever, but we don't really talk about it in an interesting, detailed way. They're kind of just dismissed as something, right? Yeah, that's so true. And it's to our detriment because I think most people aren't aware, but these gray and black markets actually make up for almost half of the global economy. And yet we so wow. we know so little about them. So that's the yeah. whole purpose of this show is because we can actually learn so much from these very intricate networks that in amazing ways sort of operate almost in parallel to to the legal economy yeah and you've grown the show to not just talk about the economic type of black markets but the social type of black markets you know the white supremacy type of stuff and all these things which is a whole different type of black market right that's right yeah i mean you know, the bread and butter of the show are drugs and guns yeah. Yeah, the good that stuff, you often yeah. associate with black markets. <laughs> yeah. But I think it, we've always wanted myself, you know, I've been covering black markets for almost 20 years, and I've always wanted the show to be so much more than that. And in, in this season, too, we had the opportunity to do that with the episode on, on white supremacy, which was, you know, we know they're out there. And what was yeah. surprising to find out is that it actually, these these white supremacy uh, networks actually operate very much like, um, you know, trafficking networks. Um, mm -hmm. But instead of putting drugs in people's bodies or guns in people's hands, they're putting very dangerous ideas in people's minds. And so we we thought it was a great opportunity to sort of expand the scope of the show and go go wider with it. Yeah, I want to come back to the show, but let's talk about you for a second, Mariana. You're from Portugal, as you've mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago. The first thing I mentioned to anyone. <laughs> It's great. I, you know what? I have not been to Portugal yet. I've been uh, to your neighbor, Spain, you know, but I so wanted one of my good friend of mine is from Portugal. He's such a, he's a very talented magician. 
And I've talked to him about Portugal a couple of times, and I just really, really want to go. And this stupid pandemic is over. It's one of the first places I want to go. You should. Yeah, you're from Portugal, and you grew up there, right? I did, yeah. I grew up in Portugal. I was there until I was about 24 years old. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I pretty much decided I wanted to be a journalist when I was uh, 12 years old. Really? What, what, what was it that made you want to do that at such a young age? Yeah, I used to watch the nightly news of my family every night. It was sort mm -hmm. of mandatory viewing. We only had two channels in Portugal when I was growing up, so it was either that or going to bed. Right. And uh, and these hosts, these anchors on Portugal, Portuguese television just talking about the whole world with so much knowledge, what was going on in China, in Brazil. And I had no idea they were reading from a teleprompter. I just thought <laughs> they were knowledgeable, smartest people in the world. So it was right there. I was, okay, this is it. I want to be a journalist. And then it was sort of a battle to make it into the U.S. It wasn't easy. I knew I wanted, um, my mom had asked me to stay in Portugal in, for college. So I studied mm -hmm. international relations there. But I knew eventually I wanted to come to the U.S. So I started looking at Columbia University's journalism program. And I knew mm -hmm. that was my goal. And I applied the first year and I didn't get in. I applied the second year and I didn't get in. And the third year, I just flew to New York and I knocked on the dean's door and I told him, I want to be a journalist. And he wow. sat me down. And that year I was accepted. It was, was one of the happiest days of my life. Well, you kind of shown what it takes to be a journalist by showing up at that office you you know doing the dirty work of just going to the to the place right it's about it's all up and coming journalists all about persistence and i i read that you were in new york at about 9 11 and it kind of thrust you into your job in a certain way or into your career you could say can you tell us about that yeah absolutely yeah i'd, I'd arrived in new york in august of 2001 mm -hmm. and uh remember just walking around in wonderment can, couldn't believe that i was actually living there and then a month later 9 11 happened and i started getting phone calls from the tv station i'd worked at in portugal i was the only portuguese journalist in manhattan at the time which was crazy and so basically they told me I was 24 years old and I had no experience reporting live events. And they said, you know, go to this building in Midtown, go to the rooftop. There's uh, cameras there, there's satellite and they're waiting for you. And I was the face of my country uh, that night. It was the first person when you turned on the TV that you saw that night reporting on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And the initial feeling was um, so nervous. And then I did it. And then I was exhilarated. I couldn't believe that I actually was able to put two words together and that I did a good job. And I was sort of so happy and proud and patting myself in the back and all the wrong things to do at that moment. Um, and then I walked down to the streets of New York and I started seeing the first people carrying signs looking for their miss their loved ones. Yeah. And it was sort of the moment that it all uh, dawned on me what had just happened. And it changed my whole trajectory it was a moment also that I sort of realized, OK, the kind of journalism that I want to do is not, um, you know, the live reporting, the nightly news. But I really want to sort of dig deep into these um, worlds and try to contextualize what just happened here, there. I just had a pull to towards understanding why something, an event this tragic had happened. And a year later, I moved to the Middle East. I moved to Syria and I enrolled in the University of Damascus and the beginning of my career as a freelance at the time started. And what kind of work were you doing in Syria? How long were you there? So I was there for under a year, about eight months, more or less. Initially enrolled in the University of Damascus to learn Arabic. Mm -hmm. I knew the war in Iraq was uh, had just had just started. Um, and I knew it was going to be the center of uh, action for a long time for all story ideas, stories. And I wanted to be close to it. Um, it turns out that Damascus at the time was actually a big party city. It was full of, uh, <laughs> but it had like a small group of foreigners that were there, uh -huh. learn Arabic too as well. So I spent a lot of time partying and not enough time learning Arabic. <laughs> I learned a little bit enough to get around at the time, but it was when I did my first story in this sort of black markets, um, which was about mm -hmm. the Syrian jihadis that were crossing into Iraq to fight against the Americans. I found out about it through a Syrian friend of mine who came from this little town on the border Mm -hmm. That then became sort of the center of ISIS, this area. And um, um, and he told me this this is happening in my town. All my childhood friends are going to Iraq under the cover of darkness. And the ones that are being killed are being hailed as heroes and martyrs. And it's crazy. And I said, can you take me there? And um, my my now husband at the time, my boyfriend, American boyfriend who I'd met at Columbia University, came to visit me. And he was he wanted to be a print journalist. But I said, look, there's this opportunity to do this. So. 
I was a long story, but I was selling rugs. Uh, I would buy rugs in in Syria, and because I was making no money as a journalist, right? right. So I was buying rugs in. You were Syria. a true journalist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Real poor journalist, and uh, shipping rugs to my mom, who'd hold these tea parties, um, and which send me back the money from the rugs, and that's how I was surviving. And with part of that money, my boyfriend at the time, husband now, and I went to the border with Lebanon, bought a little camcorder. And went to this town and spent a week there interviewing um, jihadis, and mm-hmm. it was sort of my first understanding that, that there's this whole underworld, under um, you know, world of that we know so little about and has such uh, an effect on our daily lives, and that that was the beginning of it all. That world is fascinating too. It's also underanalyzed. It's it's so it's presented to us in such a black and white fashion, the way, and I don't want to just say ISIS because there's so much of the government structures there are pretty much the a blatant expression of that black market kind of ideology, the way people interact, the way they bargain, you know, the way deals are made, you know, that are supposedly legit, the legitimate governments kind of act with that kind of uh, ethos. Isn't that right? That is absolutely right. Yeah. We don't understand that here. We think there's this honor type of way of acting, whereas this is how the world has acted for millennia, you know, the way that it goes on in there. Yeah, it is so interesting. I think I was reading it the other day about historically how actually these black markets have existed and and there's been an acquiescence from governments worldwide. I think it was when the Irish and the Italians first came to the United States mm-hmm. that they were, uh, you know, um, they had, uh, you know, all these sort of... Um, uh, trades that weren't exactly uh, legal, but it was uh, it was okay because they were starting their lives here, and it was sort of right. allowed um, in a new country. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, especially in Syria, I think what surprised me and shocked me the most that has really become defined um, my career as a journalist was finding out that a lot of the people, you know, the so-called enemy, right? These were right. the people. I was in New York, you know, I knew people who knew people who had been killed. So I I had I was curious to meet these people, but I was I never thought I would meet people that I would feel empathy towards. Yeah. And then I realized, actually, you know, these guys that are crossing the border to kill Americans are sort of, you know, have families, have mm-hmm. kids. They're one, the one in particular that we spent time with was sort of the clown of the town. Like I'd met this guy before, you know, so many times in my past. Like we all know this person, the clown that all kids love, that mm. everybody loves in town. And he's just funny and sweet and kind and yet felt compelled, um, felt that there was an injustice being done, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was correct or not. Um, but he felt there was an injustice and he felt the need to go and to fight for for what for this injustice. And yeah, I think it was almost more scary to f- find out that actually these people that we consider our enemies are, are human beings just like us and they're normal people. I think that's and even scarier. I think it's easier to mm-hmm. paint the world as black and white, right? Bad versus good. I mean, it's the position we find ourselves in at the end of this whole Afghanistan thing where people are like, well, how can you deal with the Taliban? It's like, you have no choice. What do you mean, how can you? You have, That's that's the legitimate structure there is the Taliban now. And by the way, the Taliban is having their hands full dealing with the radicals and the, uh, the other people. So it's, you know, that's kind of, once again, it's a messy world. It's not, you can't just say the good and the bad people. Right? Yeah, it's a messy world. And I think our instinct is to try to stop it once it already exists, instead of looking at the roots um, of, mm-hmm. of why these, in black markets in particular, like why do black markets exist? Why are there so many drug traffickers and chemists and all these people operating in these black markets? So the whole I think one of the reasons we wanted to do this show is to get at the motivations, because only when you get at the motivations can you actually do something to prevent these from happening. Was this uh, an idea that you had in the beginning? Did you pitch it to Nat Geo or did someone present you with it and say, hey, Mariana, we love what you're doing out there. Would you like to do something like this as a show? It was a combination. You know, I was working for them as a correspondent for their Explorer show. Mm -hmm. And the stories that I continued pitching to them were stories about black markets. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I did one in Mexico about the drug cartels there, about heroin uh, trafficking there. And then I did one in Gaza where we went to the tunnels, to the illegal tunnels under Gaza that are smuggling goods in and out. Mm -hmm. And um, we started talking and they said, look, we think this is, uh, we really like the kind of reporting you do. And what if we came up with the show? So we started talking and then trafficked came up. And I, I mean, it's been, I've been wanting to do a show like this for years. So it was truly a dream come true. Did you ever find yourself in that first season saying, oh, fuck, what did I sign up for? This is, <laughs> this, what the hell am I doing here? I think I say that in every single episode. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it seems like every episode, like, Mariana, be careful. I know. But it's not, actually, it's not so much because of the, the dangerous situations that I sometimes find myself in. It's more because it's so difficult to put together the show, like to gain access into these worlds. People always how do you gain access to these worlds? How do you go about that? Do you have, like, in most of our shows, the way the showbiz works, we have what are called segment producers. You know, these are the people that find the stories and they call people, they cold call and that type of stuff. But it's very nice, you know, it's all this type of stuff. It's almost like a, being a car salesman. Like, who are the people that do that kind of cold calling in your business? And how does it, how do you gain someone's trust to allow you to be there with cameras. Yeah, it's the hardest part of my job. I have an amazing team, which includes um, at every given time, we have three or four producers working with us. Mm -hmm. And each one of them is investigating a different story. But I would say that for every yes, what people don't see is the amount of no's that we get. Like we mm. did the one, a good example is um, we did a story on pimps for season one. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we called, I'm not, I don't think I know because it was a couple of producers, one in particular, but they called and reached out on Instagram and on Facebook and on chats and whatnot over a hundred people pimps or people who said they were pimps until you know, <laughs> one agreed to talk to us. And then that turned into two. And then we got three to talk to us. But the, it was so many people don't realize just how many how many no's we get to get a yes. It's it's by far the hardest part. But I would say that the reasons they say yes, which I think is the most interesting part is I think it's a combination of ego impunity mm -hmm. you know a lot of these wor worlds they don't see a downside to it here's an american channel national geographic everybody's heard of Nat Geo around the world and they want to come and talk to me so why not it's their chance of um sort of boasting about what they're really good at yes you know, they i was the gonna best ask that fentanyl chemist or the best person at packaging drugs or the best guy trafficking guns or what whatever it is and and they see it here. And, and a lot of times their families actually don't know what they do. So we give them an opportunity to wow. be masked, organized, and boast about what they're really passionate about doing. And then I think the most interesting thing that I've discovered is that it actually is a, a very human characteristic, which is this need that we all have to be understood, um, mm -hmm. to share our stories. They full on know that they're considered, you know, the outlaws, the criminals, the people that the, the bad guys. And um, and we give them the opportunity to to share their stories. I think everyone I meet, um, I tell them I'm here with no judgment. I'm here with empathy. I really am curious about your story and I want to hear your story. Um, that's not always easy. Sometimes it's yeah. really hard, but but most times I'd say that I find a human being on the other end. That's what also makes um, makes me have a more positive view of the world than you would think for somebody covering black markets. Has there been one where it was really, really hard for you to, to stay on that side and go, mm, I don't know, motherfuckers, Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah the white supremacy by far yeah and you were you were hanging out with the guy who was like an ex-white supremacist although i'm always suspicious of that term ex-white supremacist but you know he's actually turned his life around and devotes his all his mm -hmm. life to de-radicalizing and, and trying to get people out of uh of white supremacy movement his story is actually amazing christian picciolini but yeah, but with the scary part was hanging out with Americans um, who are Nazis and racists and white supremacists and hateful human beings. Mm -hmm. And again, I always try to find uh, humanity in everyone. And I have to say that in those situations, it was just really hard. And some of the things they weren't, I mean, they were openly inciting violence. Mm -hmm. And there's a line there, I think, for us as journalists and responsibility to try to understand how much of this they're saying because they want to shock, mm -hmm. um, how much of it they're saying because they think it's... And if um, they're using your platform. Oh, yeah. yeah, so using our platform. You know, it's interesting because I was 
in uh, California with the first Barack Obama election when he was first elected the first year. And I was with a few neo-Nazis. We were doing or thinking of doing a story about the neo-Nazi movement back then because everybody was saying that it was going to grow uh-huh. with the election of our first black president. And um, and I spent the night with them. And my husband and I went home. We were working together at the time. And we were like, we can't. We can't give these guys a platform. Like, uh-huh. it's not the moment. This is a moment of hope and joy and and it shouldn't be we shouldn't we can't bring the whole feeling of joy and hope down with this so we decided not to we didn't want to give them a platform but at the same time i've just been seeing this movement grow Mm -hmm. more and more point where we are now and at one at some point you also have to do the responsible thing which is not ignore the elephant in the room and 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 go and report it and and that's the decision we made yeah it does seem different from the others only because of what you say about hate but let me ask you this is there any part of that particular one where someone allowed you to sit on their side of the aisle if it was even temporary um you mean by uh, sharing their story in a way that i would Mm -hmm. understand it yes there was actually um it's complicated right but um but there was one guy we basically the whole story was about how these white supremacy groups and, and people aren't aren't uh, lone wolves. So when attacks yes. like what happened in Paso, very important point by the way. Yes, yeah, it's, they're not lone wolves. They're they're being inspired online by other groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're being taught online and sometimes offline too. They go on location. So there was the Ukraine became a great a big training ground for a lot of American white supremacists that went to the Ukraine to learn how to use guns and weapons and and be in a place where there was a, an ongoing war happening. And so we were trying to track down Americans who went to Europe to gain um, training and knowledge. And we eventually actually tracked down, not in Ukraine, we met a few that didn't want to talk to us on camera, but eventually we tracked down one American in Serbia, uh, Robert Rundo, his name is, who had a group in California called the Rise Above Movement and then got in sort of trouble with the law and left. But mm-hmm. he basically, and again, we spent two days with him. So I had a long, long, lot of time to spend with him. And he had been in a juvenile prison and had had, you know, a non-existent father in his life. Uh, the mother was uh, had to work a lot and was sort of not very much in his life either. And he started to share with me a little bit about his childhood and where he grew up and what was life was like for him. And of course, in no way do I condone any of his beliefs. But again, without at least trying to understand where it comes from, um, I think we, you know, again, um, the empathy, I think, works um, more in our favor than judgment. Yeah, it, it it is the the gang origin story, that type of thing, which makes it a little different from the guy you talked to at the meth lab. He's like, hey, this is a good job. You know, I'm just, you know, it was just an opportunity. Like, there's no ideology behind the guy making meth, really. No. But this no. is a little more pernicious because, you know, like, how big is the white supremacy thing in Europe as an organization now? And, like, do is are we on the brink of something that we should really be, you know, pay more attention to and not just act like it's just a fringe thing? Or or do you think, well, I don't know, it seems like it's going to be on the fringe for at least for a while. What is your take on that? I mean, we are absolutely on the brink of something. It's mm-hmm. happening already. I mean, the attack on El Paso, which was inspired by the attack in the mosques mm-hmm. in New Zealand, which was inspired on the attacks in, in Norway. They're all chatting online. They're all learning online. They're all being inspired one by the other. And and absolutely. I mean, you saw we hung out with the Proud Boys um, two months before um, the invasion of the, our capital. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was very shocking to see just how openly, um, how how aggressive they were towards the media, mm-hmm. first of all. I mean, we, we were, our cameras got grabbed. They went after a CNN crew, but also how their brand of white supremacy is sold in a very palatable uh, way. They, they, they'll tell you they're not white supremacists. Um, and yet they talk about Western chauvinism. That's their whole thing. They believe that the West is the best mm-hmm. and the West is the majority white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're saying that the rest of the, the world sucks and every, there's no better than basically a white majority um, places like the West. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, because you've shot 
um, I think all of season two in, and now season three in COVID, right? That's right. Yeah, we started filming in June of 2020. What's been the biggest obstacle? Has that changed the approach at all or how you've interacted with people? Has it made it tougher to find people? It hasn't. You know, one thing that we found pretty early on, we were all concerned, obviously. Um, we started filming so early during the pandemic. We weren't sure what we were going to find. Um, but I think one thing we found immediately was that there's been an explosion in black markets. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whenever there's an economic downturn, that's right. Yeah. Lose their jobs, they have to figure yeah. out a way to make money for their families. So there's actually... Mm -hmm been an explosion in, in black markets, whether it's guns, drug scams. We did a whole episode for season two romance about scams. romance scams. Yeah. I mean, pretty much a crime that grew out of the pandemic. I mean, it, it's really, I mean, it existed before, but there was like yeah. a 300% increase during the pandemic because there's so many people alone at home. They need people. They want to start talking to people. And um, eventually they think they found the man of their dreams and man of their nightmares is what it is. Or the woman, you know, what was so interesting about that episode is that we started recording in the U S and started talking to victims and found all these women, female victims that had spent, had, I mean, some women, had given over two million dollars to oh these people God. that they thought were the men of their the men of their dreams. And then we go to and then we found out that the center of the scamming is actually happening in West Africa in Ghana. So we went right. to Ghana and spent time in these den of scammers and meeting scammers and seeing their whole operation, which is mind blowing. But the most interesting thing that we found is that so many of them were actually scamming men, except that men are so much more ashamed to talk publicly that we did could not find one male victim willing to talk to us. Women were totally gang, but not men. Were the men falling in love with men or with women? Both, mostly men, but okay. they sometimes use women to do the phone calls, but they mm -hmm. have these amazing video apps. So so they they that you can do video, they do video calls with these people. Yeah. I haven't seen this episode yet, man. This is a. Uh... It's so good. It's so good. It's so um, crazy <laughs> what is happening and why they do it and how they do it. And you'll be surprised. I think we all think, okay, person who's being romance scammed and thinks they're mm -hmm. talking to an American sort of military guy and in fact is talking mm -hmm. to a teenager in Ghana is probably not a very smart person. Well, that's not the case. These are smart. The victims that we spoke to were smart people. They're wow. smart women who ran, you know, one of them had her own um, company for years and then got a divorce and was uh -huh. feeling really lonely. And then this happened and they, she spent over a million dollars spent wow. money to, these, to this guy, this one guy. But they are so smart the way they do that. These, these cameras, they really have this operation down. I wow. mean, it's it's incredible. It's like when you see in movies how smart the the uh, super criminals are like that. It's like if you guys use these skills for good instead of evil, you know, I find these brilliant people that are so good at what they do. And you always want to how is this like what did you have you ever thought of using all your skills in the legal economy? And a lot of times it just starts with a lack of opportunity. And then it goes mm -hmm. into, well, I'm now making a lot of money. Why would I want to do that? Yeah, the the meth episode was Man, it was heartbreaking in a lot of ways, you know, where I was surprised at how many people are actually doing meth right now. Like, what was your big takeaway from that? I mean, you think it's you're just going to watch, OK, it's, it's these bad people who are making meth and selling to everybody. But man, it was it was a fascinating episode of just how ubiquitous that is. It is. Either it's made a huge comeback. Um, yeah. I think the scariest thing was finding out, you know, it started with just like these small little, um, you know, mobile labs here in the U.S. And then we were able to crack down on the cold medication. And then what's happened is that it made, you know, demand is still there so somebody has to make it and so now it's happening in mexico and we had the opportunity of filming this uh super lab it was just floored by how big and what the size of the production of meth that they're making and i think even more horrible was the purity of the meth and how dangerous it's become i mean it's the meth if you compare it to meth like 10 years ago is nothing compared to the meth that they're making right now. And they're starting to, they usually, they until now had to depend on these precursor chemicals coming from China, which there's always an uncertainty there, but now they're starting to make their own uh, chemicals, precursor chemicals. So it's that everything is there for it to 
be an explosion in math in the coming years, even more than what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I saw uh, an interview where you talked about, you know, the fact that you're a woman kind of sometimes catches people off guard a little bit. Maybe they maybe they drop their guard a little bit more with you because of that, or or has it been the opposite? What what has that done to this process from your point of view? Yeah, I think it's actually been incredibly uh, helpful. I've really capitalized on gender bias. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I do the same thing with race. People yeah. always underestimate uh, me as yeah. a woman. It's, it really yeah. works in my favor. And I, the meth lab, for example, but I've been in fentanyl labs and heroin labs and all these like trafficking Ugh. Networks all around. So often do I hear you're the first woman to ever step foot in this place. And we just don't have women here. Well, it's probably because maybe women aren't dumb enough to walk into these places. <laughs> maybe they're a little smarter. They know, you know what? <laughs> no, thank you, uh, Fentanyl Lab, where I can take one whiff and I'm dead. No, thanks. I don't think I'll be walking into there anytime soon. That's crazy. You're the first one. This is so weird. We can't understand it. Why can't we attract women in here? We don't get it. It, it really helps, though. It also, I'm less intimidating, I guess, because people do mm. open up, I think, because I am a woman. It's been, it's really helped me in so many ways. And I, I also think, on a deeper level, I also think mm -hmm. the empathy side, that we women um, just have more of more of wanting to understand and putting ourselves in other people's shoes. I think mm -hmm. it's a very female characteristic um, mm -hmm. that, has really helped me in my job. Yeah, I do appreciate the fact that um, as being, I don't know if I'm a news junkie to, you know, no pun intended with the things we're talking about, but, you know, I've always enjoyed news, but it's been very frustrating for me, I would say the last, especially five or 10 years, because there's so much stupid opinion to me that's embedded in almost all news. You have to really search to get something that just isn't overwhelming. That And it's such a breath of fresh air with what you're doing is you're not injecting your opinion into something you're giving us your eyes pretty much and allowing us to see how you're seeing something and just inviting us to kind of go along for the ride with you right a hundred percent i think yeah. our jobs as journalists is not to tell people what to think it's mm -hmm. to tell people what to think about <laughs> that is awesome i love that uh, do you think is there any um I hope this is wait. Let me ask you this first, because have you ever thought of turning anyone in? I mean, your life would be in danger, I'm sure. But have you ever thought, you know, this motherfucker's got to go to jail. I can't just stand here and let this shit happen. No, <laughs> like that thought can't even go through your head because they'll see it on your forehead if that thought goes through your head. No, not only would I not have a show if that was the case, but I also yeah. probably wouldn't be alive if that was the case. No, but I, I think it's. You know, I, it's not as if law enforcement doesn't know this stuff happens. Uh, they have the same, if not a lot more information than we do. Um, mm -hmm. but I do think, you know, we have a very healthy uh, separation between the media and the government in this country. Thank God. And I think that's very, very important. And we, do, I do get contacted, uh, actually, sometimes by law enforcement to use some of our videos as training for some of what they do. And we actually, you know, in, we also contact law enforcement. We go on raids with them because part of the show is not only to show the black market and the people operating in them, but also the people that are trying to chase them and track them down. So there's a, a law enforcement angle to it, but we don't absolutely do not mix. Mm -hmm. I take yeah. it very seriously that mm -hmm. the the non-identification of my sources very we go to great extents to make sure that we don't show faces they make certain demands you have to be you have to listen to those seriously right in terms of what they expect from you right? yes except mm -hmm. for we i always say yes you'll tell me how you want to appear you don't want your face you want your mm -hmm. voice changed you don't want me to show the location or the outside of the house I'm okay with all of that. The only thing that I don't um, do is they can't tell me what to ask or not to ask. I mean, they can, but eventually I'm going to sit down. I'm going to ask them all mm -hmm. the things that I want to ask. That actually happened when for our motorcycle gang story, um, where it was, you know, motorcycle, the outlaw groups, they're um, one percenters, as they're called. They're some of the most secretive groups. Um, it's one of the only groups that is actually outlaw groups made in America. You know, that unlike is. the mafia or the cartel, it's like made in America. It was born and raised and created in America. And we actually had the chance to go to one of their campgrounds outside of Sturgis. We went to the Sons of Silence campground. And it was one of the only situations where they gave us questions ahead of time. And they told us, okay, this is what you can ask. This is what you can't. But of course, we sat down. I was like, no, not, not right. going to do that. Once the cameras are rolling, I start asking them. Oops. 
<laughs> you have to be smart about it and just ask the tough questions at the end. I had some, you guys, I don't know what happened. You know what? I'll just ask this. And when I find them, you know, I'll ask you those questions. You know, uh, you know what's interesting too is, is watching your show. It upends like a lot of conventional wisdom with things too. The, the black market marijuana was fascinating because I, there were so many arguments about you have to legalize drugs and marijuana because it'll get rid of the black market if you legalize it once people can buy it. And it is actually the opposite. The black market has actually thrived after legalization, right? Yeah, it's three to four times bigger, the black market for marijuana in California than the legal market. 80% of uh, dispensaries in California are actually illegal. So whenever we, you know, we know people who go to dispensaries to buy uh, mm -hmm. weed, there's a very high chance that they're actually buying illegal weed. I have seen how the war on drugs doesn't work and how we mm -hmm. spent billions on a failed uh, war and a failed policy. And But I do think, um, and, and therefore, it's made me think that we should do more what my country, Portugal, uh, my country of birth has done, which is we decriminalized drugs several years right. ago, and it worked very well for us. You guys gave out like your paraphernalia, things like that. You really kind of went overboard with it. Or overboard, I'm saying from our point of view. It's right? so smart. We basically mm -hmm. gave people the option. You can you're, you're found with a certain amount of drugs. You can choose whether you want to go to drug rehab or you want to go to prison. Of course, most people want to go to drug rehab. And what happens is that there has been, you know, the lowest levels of incarceration, of AIDS. Um, you know, the government spends a lot less money treating people than they do incarcerating people. So mm -hmm. it's just been really successful. Um, and I wish that was happening more around the world. So I think legalizing drugs such as weed in California made sense. What happened was that we made it impossible for people to legalize weed, to open legal companies. So you were essentially having to pay. It's, it's ridiculously expensive. The bureaucracy is insane. Mm -hmm. So you have people who are paying rent on a store waiting to be able to pay and to get the green light to open it, to li the license to open the shop. But they just, um, at the end of the day, can't because they can't fund it. And then the banking system is insane because it's federally illegal. So you can't have a bank account or a loan. So the whole system is crazy. And it's just sort of made people turn to the black market. Yeah, it is interesting because it's kind of a facade, the legalization of it in many ways, because they've legalized something, but they have still keep it illicit in some ways by putting it in this vice category where it has to have these insane tariffs and taxes and 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 barrier to entry that are so costly that it it's like keeping it illegal in a sense it's crazy it's like well why did you do this in the first place you're almost making the problem worse it's true and you know what's so sad is that we met with people like uh, a guy called energy who's been running his weed shop when he heard of legalization he was so happy he thought okay this is my opportunity i cannot finally do this out in the open i can be proud about this business that i've been sort of uh, building for years and it can become legal. And then when it when he realized what was necessary and he's been trying and he can't get illegal. Yeah. And so all the people that have actually been in the system, who some of them have been incarcerated, are now the ones that don't have an opportunity to run legal companies and stores, which is really sad. Yeah, it's like the... I was always struck by how during the whole war on drugs, it was always poor black people who paid the highest cost for just possession of drugs, not even selling. That's a whole different thing. But just just having drugs, you know, where, you know, all the white people I know would always boast about how many drugs they did and everything. I'm like, motherfucker, have you ever been in jail? <laughs> no, you know, you get to use it free in the suburbs and all this stuff, you know, and now it's legal, but. It's now the same group of people get to get the advantage of the legalized drugs and the same victimized people still don't get that advantage. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, that was a big point that we wanted to make with our with our episode was that because it was really shocking to see how, you know, they're the people who suffered because of it. And now they have to turn they have an opportunity to turn that suffering into an opportunity. You can't the, the door is closed and shut on you. And we're going to bring in the big companies and the big money and the people who have a lot of money to invest in this. And they're the ones we're going to enjoy it and profit from it and being able to run a, a legal market. Yeah, it's it's very sad. How do you choose the stories that you're going to tell? Do you do you said you have different um, journalists who are working on individual stories and they bring it to you? Do they pitch them to you or how does that work? Not quite. We have daily meetings. Uh, uh -huh. 
and we talk about everything, um, the things that are in production, but we also talk about stories that we're um, passionate about. It really is um, very much my passion to cover these black markets. There's all this crazy stuff happening all around us. Um, and yeah, I guess we all, there's a discussion, internal discussion. A lot of it is is uh, driven by the curios- my curiosity and the curiosity of my team and also looking at the world around us and seeing, okay, what, what matters now? What is relevant mm-hmm. now? Mm-hmm. And what is important now? And uh, there have been stories though that we've been, we've gone really down the line. Um, we've been in country actually and decided actually this is not a good idea because it's mm-hmm. too dangerous or we're never going to get access or it's not looking good or, and yeah, it's, um, it's a lot of work. Have the, has there been any moments that you've actually shot but you haven't used like do you have any favorite moments that never made it on where you're like, ah man it's too bad we didn't get a chance to show that oh that's such a good question um there's always things that end up on the cutting floor uh you know we filmed in atlanta at a strip club in atlanta for a story that we did on uh illegal plastics black market plastic surgery and uh There was so much had this was right in the middle of the pandemic and it was a massive club. No one was wearing a mask and we spent a long time. My whole team was masked and we spent a long time there talking to the women and seeing the transformation of their bodies through these, you know, illegal injections and incredibly dangerous plastic surgery and all that. And then we ended up practically not using any of it to our we took great risk <laughs> to fill this one in. and then at the end we ended up not using a lot of it because the story went another way um yeah there's always things that end up on the on the cutting board i think um one of the things they tell they'll tell you about good storytelling is that you can't be afraid to kill your babies right such a horrible expression but it is true we use that all the time yeah yeah you should feel proud of that don't be afraid to kill your babies wait what what are you talking about? Of course I shouldn't want to kill my babies. Why would you take that feeling away? Uh, do you have any babies in season two? Any favorite episodes that you're you're more fond of for any reason? I think the white supremacy, just the relevance of it. We mm-hmm. filmed it two months before the invasion of the Capitol and we spent time mm. with the Proud Boys and we, we sort of, you know, it, it came, it's coming at the right time. Um, it's airing the first week of January to, to for the one year anniversary of, um, of mm-hmm. the capital invasion. And I'm really proud we did this because it is not, it's not a typical subject for a show about black markets, but we pushed hard to get that done. And I'm so happy that we did it. And then there's, yeah, there's, there's a few others. I love the romance scams, a really good one. Yeah. We also did one on illegal fishing that I think most people don't know anything about. And mm. to us, what was actually most shocking was we spent, you know, months trying to chase down these people fishing illegally out in the ocean. And it happens, but it's almost impossible to police because wow. there's no government jurisdiction, because they're out there in the cover of darkness. So there's lots of complicated reasons. And we spent months working with the Sea Shepherd, uh, which is an organization that, to, that, that tries to protect our oceans, um, trying to film it. And then eventually what we started getting sort of um, going in more and more of these fishing vessels with them uh, in, in raids and trying and seeing these massive amounts of industrial fishing, basically massive nets, bringing in all this fish, we realized actually the story was not about what was being done illegally. It's what is allowed to be done legally. Um, they were throwing away 90% of the fish that was coming up on these nets, dead fish. They were throwing it away, and it's called a bycatch, and they were keeping just 10%, completely unsustainable. And mm-hmm. um, I think my my whole team and I have had a really hard time eating seafood and fish ever since. But it's moments like these that really make me love what I do, is um, still finding out such shocking things about the world with hopefully that have some sort of an impact. Well, Maya, I'm such a fan. I'm so happy I got to speak to you. It's such an interesting show, an important show. So much integrity at the heart of it. And you, we are all concerned for you in every episode. <laughs> and your team, you know. Uh, season two, you guys have trafficked. I think it's on Wednesday nights. Is it on Nat Geo? But I'm sure it's, it's a rerun all around. And I think Hulu, they can find it as well. Um, watch it, guys. It's great. And I know you're in the middle of, of shooting season three right now already. I am, yeah. Wow. Any any preview or anything? Or, uh, <laughs> last question I wanted to ask you. Do you think the illicit drug trade can ever go away? No. 
<laughs> it's here to stay, right? Look, I was just in, uh, we're doing one of the episodes about MDMA ecstasy. And fascinating that I just found out that ecstasy is a party drug. You know, people yeah. usually use it when yep, they go they out to party. And what happened in Holland, in the Netherlands, um, is that because people aren't partying, but they have this vast, they have all these labs for MDMA, what drug traffickers started to do is they saw an opportunity in making meth. So a country that had no meth before is now using meth. There's, it's just in us, in us human beings, it's yeah. to use drugs. And there's a lot of people out there that will use that as an opportunity to make money, sometimes to feed their family, sometimes to become very rich. Yeah, and people need the escape on the other end, and most of the time just to escape the pain of whatever they're going through. It's, it is fascinating. Mariana Vanzella, you guys, Traffic, National Geographic. Thanks, Mariana. Thank you, Larry. You had so much fun. Thanks for having me.